Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat and this time that we get to come together to not only worship before you, but to be able to be fed, to be nourished from your word. Lord, I pray that as we open up the word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word spoken, your heart received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, I thank you for allowing us to be able to dig into your word and to glean from your Holy Spirit as we do so, as you continue to mold us and mature us in faith and in our walk with you. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. So this week we are in Parsha Chukat, uh, which is Numbers 19, 1 through 22, verse 1. The word Chukat is a plural form of the Hebrew word Chok which is a supra-rational decree, a decree of Adonai which is beyond human understanding, but which we are still expected to be obedient. One of the ways I like to describe it uh, is that a hoke is kind of like when, as a parent, I go to my child and I say, hey, I need you to do A, B, C, or D, whatever it may be. And they look at me and go, but why? And I get to do the ever so child-pleasing response of, because I said so. You don't have to know why. I just said do it. Please go do it. A chok, a, de a divine decree of this nature, this supra-rational decree, is something that is kind of in that category, if you would. It's God saying, look, I don't expect you to understand it. If I did, it wouldn't be supra-rational. If I, if I expect you to understand it, you wouldn't have questions about it. I just expect you to be obedient in following along with that. Now, we're not going to talk in great detail about the parahaduma, the, the red heifer, uh, which is the specific hope that's being dealt with here. Uh, but I do want to point out that although the parahaduma, which is the red heifer, the slaughtering of it, the, the fact that it makes everyone who comes into contact with the process of making the holy water that comes from the, the sacrifice of the heifer that is then used to make other people clean, that in the process of it, every single person involved in that process then becomes unclean. And when we look at the, total, the totality of the, the discussion of the paradoma, the, the red heifer, it's really interesting looking to see all of the unique little foreshadowings that we see in the discussion of the red heifer uh, as it points directly to Yeshua, our Messiah, who much like the high priest and all of those serving with the sacrifice and the development of the cleansing waters, from the paradama, they all became unclean so that the person uh, who has been unclean can become clean. In the same sense, Yeshua, our Messiah, like the red heifer and like those involved in the process of making the cleansing water from the sacrifice of the red heifer, Yeshua became unclean so that we could, in fact, be cleansed from our uncleanliness and be able to enter into his kingdom for eternity. As we've said before, in the 36 chapters of Bamidbar, or the book of Numbers, uh, we cover approximately 38 years of Israel's journey to the Promised Land. By this point, especially by chapter 20, tradition tells us we are toward the tail end of the 40-year wilderness experience, and the majority of the first generation has now died off. And it is the first part of chapter 20 that we will be focusing on today. So as you begin to get out your Bibles in your hands or pull up your Bible apps on your phones or your tablets, you'll notice that Numbers 20 begins by mentioning the death of Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron and the prophetess of Israel. The Talmud speaks of the well of Miriam as being the rock which followed Israel around through the wilderness, providing water, through, uh, providing water for them to thrive. However, it says that 
as we see with the flyby description of Miriam's death, that Israel failed to mourn appropriately for the death of Miriam. And the Lord shut up the water from this rock. As an aside, it is also Jewish tradition that this rock, which followed Israel through the wilderness, providing water for them to thrive, was the Messiah, or at least a foreshadowing of the Messiah, who in the Besor, the good news says that he would provide us with living waters or waters of life that will never run dry. And it is in these short verses in which we see the water from the rock that we see very distinctly different reactions to a problem that can ultimately only be solved by God. Now, as we begin to look at the text itself, I want us to keep one key thing in mind. We serve an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God. And no matter how hard we try, we can never surprise Him. Now, those are big, fancy theological words. Uh, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Basically, they mean that He's everywhere at once. He can see everything at once. He knows everything at once. And He's all-powerful. Um, and so it's just really fancy ways of saying really simple things. But nonetheless, no matter how hard we try... We cannot surprise him. If you'll open up to Numbers chapter 20, beginning with verse 2. It says, Now there was no water for the community, so they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses, saying, If only we had died when our brothers died before Adonai. Now, why have you brought the community of Adonai into this wilderness? For us and our livestock to die here? Why have you brought us from Egypt to bring us to this evil place, a place without grain, fig, grapevine, or pomegranate, and there's no water to drink. And if you pay attention to the language here, it's very similar to what we hear as soon as Israel faces the Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds, and the armies of Egypt are crashing down upon them. Why did you bring us out here to die, Moses? Were there not enough graves back in Egypt? And they get into the wilderness, and they get hungry, and there's no food for them, and they begin to say, come on, Moses, why'd you bring us out here to die? Don't you remember how great we had it back in Egypt? We had all the food we could ever imagine back in Egypt. And here we see a similar complaint, a similar argument, more specifically a similar rejection of the divine or miraculous ability of the Lord to provide for our needs. I truly can't explain why, but I'm always amazed at the number of times we see the children of Israel grumble and complain against the Lord throughout the Torah. I mean, think about it. The Torah specifically says that they walked for 40 years on sandals that never wore out. I can't even get a pair of shoes to last a year generally. Somehow they walked for 40 years on the same pair of sandals. Their clothes never wore out. They had food miraculously appear in front of their tents every single morning. And all they had to do was go and grab it up, well, except for Shabbat. All they had to do was go and grab it up and make their food. When they wanted meat, they cried out. Now, granted, they cried out in complaint. But when they wanted meat, they cried out, and God provided them meat. Uh, when they wanted anything, it was there for them. God met their needs, and he provided for them above and beyond anything they could have asked for. Yet, no matter what, they still complained. Think about the fact that they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years being led by nothing more than the uh, cloud of glory, the, the presence of God leading them through the wilderness as they wandered. They saw, as did all of the nations around them, the power and the presence of the living God in their midst, leading them step by step on their journey, not just providing for their every need, but providing for their every step. And as long as they followed faithfully behind them, they never had anything to worry. The Anashe, uh, Anshe uh, Kavod, the, the cloud of glory, not only guided them, but he also protected them. We see with 
Israel facing the Yom Suf, that the cloud of glory raised up from behind Israel and transferred between them and Egypt. I'm sorry, raised up from in front of Israel and transferred between them and Egypt and provided light for Israel crossing the sea and provided darkness for the nation of Israel, the armies of Israel, that they couldn't see what was going on and provided great confusion to the Egyptians. Yet in spite of all of this, in spite of the countless numbers of miracles day in and day out that God provided, Israel continually complained against the Lord, against Moses, and against Aaron. I would like to think if this were me that at some point I would get the picture. Rather than grumbling, all I'd have to do is to faithfully ask the Lord and he'd meet my need. I read passages like this in the Torah and, and really throughout the Bible as a whole because we see it with so many other characters and individuals throughout the, the scriptures. And I find myself wanting to yell at the Israelites. And uh, for those that have ever uh, sat in the living room watching a TV show or a movie with my mother, and most of you haven't, but a few have, uh, the, my mom is this person. I'm reading the Bible, and every time I come up to Israel about to make another stupid mistake, I want to scream at them. Don't do it. Don't do, don't go down to the basement. That's where people die. Don't go hide around the. That's where. Don't do that. I want to yell at them. That's my mom with every single. T it doesn't matter how many times she's watched it. She's still surprised that they aren't listening to her. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is, 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 is I want to yell out at them and and wake Israel up to the mistakes that they're about to make because you've got to see it coming, right? Like if you're there, if you're standing there, you think about all the things that have happened up to this point. At some point, the trigger's got to click, and you have to see what's about to happen. Yet they continue to mess up left and right. Nonetheless, Israel is thirsty. They have no water available, and they immediately turn on Moses and Aaron, which is really them turning on the Lord. They cry out, why couldn't we have died before? Why did you bring us out here just to die here in the desert? Why on earth did you drag us out of our comfort and peace in Egypt to this horrible place where there is no water? The audacity, the chutzpah. I read this year after year and always have the same thought, but how can we be so stupid, so arrogant, and so short-sighted on what God is doing and wants to do in our midst? But sadly, truth be told, if I'm honest with myself and if you're honest with yourselves, this is often exactly how we act also. And likely, way more often than we're willing to admit. How many times have we made choices to step outside the will of God, perhaps even justifying what we were already well aware of being a poor choice by saying, I feel God's leading me to do this. Then when things blow up in our faces, which we knew was going to happen because we knew we were absolutely walking outside the will of God, we then turn and blame God for our mistake. Well, God, how could you have let this happen to me again? And the whole time God's standing there going, I told you not to do this in the first place. I told you not to make that. I told you not to do this, and you didn't want to listen. Simple example of what I'm talking about, and I'm not asking for any show of hands here, but how many of us have made the choice to not tithe off of our income, our increase, because we knew we had this bill or that bill too, and we just could not spare the money to tithe? Then that one choice, one week, becomes two weeks. Then three weeks, and the cycle continues. But along with the continuing cycle, our finances get more and more tight. We have major car problems and unexpected expenses, unexpected expensive repair bills, or we get hurt and have to unexpectedly miss time at work, or any number of circumstances. Then as things are getting to dire straits, rather than simply turn to God and repent and ask Him for His help, 
we turn our noses up at him and we cry out, God, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let my family struggle so much? You promised you would provide for all my needs, but where are you? Where is your provision? If we really take the time to examine our own hearts and our own reactions in times of crises, we'd see that often we are guilty of acting the same way as the children of Israel did in the wilderness. Rather than simply turning to the only one who could actually help us, we become even more stiff-necked and hard-headed. We double down on our own stupidity. Again, we serve an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God, and no matter how hard we try, we can't surprise Him. No matter how much we think we can, we can or we are going to get away with what we're trying to do, we cannot surprise Him. And the same is true when we're walking outside of his will like uh, the nation of Israel did. When we walk outside of his will, he's not surprised by it. He knew it was coming. And as a matter of fact, not only did he know it was coming, the whole time he was rooting for us to not be stupid. The whole time he was just hoping maybe this will be the time. I know it won't, but maybe I'll be surprised. But I know I won't. Maybe they'll, they'll straighten up. We go a little further into Numbers 20, verse 9. So Moses took the staff from before the presence of Adonai, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly in front of the rock. He said, listen now, you rebels, must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out, and the community and its livestock drank. Now, I want to backtrack for a second, because first and foremost, when Israel complained and rebelled against the Lord about not having water. What was the first thing Moses and Aaron did? If you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice the very first thing they did was they turned around, they went to the tent of meetings, to the tabernacle, and they immediately fell on their face before the Lord in intercession for the nation of Israel. Immediately. And then the Lord tells Moses, take your staff, the one that you used to part the sea, Go before the nation of Israel, call the entire nation with you, have Aaron and Eleazar with you, and I want you to speak to the rock. Now, this is the same rock that provided water to them before that has now been shut up, but he says, I want you to speak to the rock. So the Lord instructs Moses in verse 8 to take his staff and to do exactly that. As a matter of fact, this was one of those scenarios we've discussed before where Israel was experiencing a crisis over again in order to test them because this isn't the first time Israel faced being thirsty, and God provided water from a rock. If you remember, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, we see a very similar account. And in this particular time, the first encounter, we actually see that God tells Moses to take his staff and to strike the rock, not to speak to it. The second time around, Israel still hasn't learned their lesson that all they had to do was to cry out to the Lord. All they had to do was to pray and ask the Lord to provide, and he would have miraculously done so. Instead, they grumble and they complain, and Moses is told this time to take his staff to go to the rock and to speak to the rock, and he would provide water from the rock. But this time was different. This time there was something new being done. The first time was about Israel learning to rely on God, and this time it was about Israel learning to glorify God, or at least it should have been. This time something was different. There was something in Moses' heart and his demeanor that was different. I think he was legitimately enraged. He was angered at the fact that after all these years, Israel still hadn't figured out that all they had to do was, as Yeshua says, ask and you shall receive. They hadn't learned to trust in the Lord. And in Moses' anger and disappointment, he responds in a way that was detrimental to his own life. Instead of simply doing what God asked, 
And let's be honest, how much more faith would it have taken to simply trust God and walk up to the rock in front of the entire nation and speak gentle words to the rock and wait to see what happens than it did to actually strike the rock the last time. Moses goes off the handle completely, and he bashes the rock. He cries out to the nation, uh, are, are we to bring water from this rock? Knowing good and well that no matter how God instructed him to affect the rock, that it wasn't him making water come from that rock, but it was God doing it. It was God miraculously providing. But Moses is wrapped up in his own feelings. Moses is wrapped up in his own head and his own anger and his own aggression. And he cries out to the nation with his staff in his hand and he screams. And I think it was likely a momentary situation where he got so angry and he said something. And before he had a chance to react, he was already into that swing. I love baseball, and this year's been miserable because there hasn't been any yet. Uh, but, you know, you, you watch baseball, and uh, there, there's always that guy that tries to check his swing because he realizes, hey, the ball's not going where I thought it was. I'm going to miss it. And he tries to check his swing, but he's turned a little too far, and it's, strike, it's a strike instead of a, a, a check swing and a ball. And that's kind of Moses. I imagine Moses, now this is just my head. This is what the Torah says. But I imagine Moses is angry, and he screams out, what the heck is wrong with you idiots? Have you not seen what God has done so far? Do you expect me to bring water from this rock? And immediately turns. Before he could stop his staff and turn away from striking it to actually listen to God himself, he struck the rock with the staff. He was supposed to, to gently talk to the rock and allow God to be the sole provider. Last time, God allowed Moses to be involved in the miracle to the degree that Moses was told to strike the rock. This time, it was all about God's glory, and Moses' anger got the best of him. After having the chutzpah enough to take personal offense about Israel's complaint, missing the reality that they weren't complaining against him, but rather against Moses, Moses then turns his staff and strikes the rock again, completely disregarding what God instructed him to do. Here's the thing. If I were God, and I think we can all agree, not only am I not God, but we're all much better off with the fact that I am not, and my wife is currently adamantly shaking her head wherever she is in agreement, and Moses did the exact opposite of what I told him to do, I would have him, I would hang him out to dry. If I told Moses, if I were God and I told Moses to speak to the rock and he strikes it, I'd just leave him there. <laughs> See if powder comes out. I don't know what you want from me. That's, I told you what to do. You didn't do it. This is on you, dude. I'm over it. Thankfully, that was not God. God shows up anyways. He wasn't surprised at all by Moses' action. There was nothing Moses did that came out of left field for the Lord, albeit he was definitively disappointed, but he wasn't surprised. He knew exactly what Moses was going to do even before Moses did. He was well aware of the anger and resentment that had built up in Moses' heart. He was aware of the jealousy for the Lord's name, the pain and anguish that Moses was feeling because Israel was revolting. I think this is exactly why the Lord sent Moses to the rock in front of the crowd with his staff. I think that God knew uh, good and well that if Moses had his staff in his hand, that he would likely uh, just, bro if he didn't have his staff in his hand, he would have likely just broken his foot on the rock. Because if it were me, and I'm Moses, and these people are driving me nuts, and I didn't have a staff, you told me to speak to it, or you, I'm forget this, I'm just going to make this... This was Moses' attitude. No matter what, he was going to strike that rock. God was well aware of what Moses would end up doing. But he placed the ball in Moses' court. The choice was his. Do what God said and allow God to be glorified or act in your own anger and vengeance. And make it where God has to glorify himself. Either way, 
God was going to do his part. And either way, God wasn't going to be surprised. Now, I want to take a little caveat here for a second, because this is the same story that we see throughout the history of creation. God created us to be in his presence in the Garden of Eden. We chose sin. We chose to step outside of his will. We chose to remove the ability for us to glorify God. And yet God still showed up. And he provided Messiah Yeshua that our lives could be redeemed. That he still showed up and made the miraculous occur. He still showed up and he met the need in the end. And albeit he had to glorify himself, he redeemed our hearts and our lives in the very same way that he redeemed Moses' striking the rock by still providing water. He redeemed our lives, our mistakes, our stepping out of his will by glorifying himself. And in that, allowing for a means for us to be restored to the ability to glorify him again. This is not unlike you and I, and if we're honest, how often have we robbed God of the glory due him before others because we were acting out of our own emotions and mental space rather than acting out of the renewal of our hearts and minds and the Ruach HaKodesh. I know I've been guilty of it myself. I know there, are, there have been plenty of times when my anger has gotten the best of me when rather than speaking life into someone in spite of the brutal headache they were causing me, I was short, I was blunt, I was harsh. I may have spoken truth, I may have spoken accurately, and I may have been entirely justified in the world's eyes in my response. But I didn't speak life. I wasn't justified in God's eyes. And I most certainly wouldn't have shown the glory of God in my actions. And this is exactly what verses 12 and 13 speak to. But Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me, so as to esteem me as holy in the eyes of Bnei Israel, therefore you will not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where Bnei Israel contended with Moses and where Adonai showed himself holy among them. The Torah says that because of Moses' actions, that God had to show himself holy among Israel. How many times in our lives have we done the same thing? How many times have we acted out of our own fallen human response rather than out of the renewal of the Holy Spirit? How many times have we not trusted in Adonai and failed to esteem him as holy before others, and yet somehow, miraculously, and in spite of us, he still reveals himself holy and still glorifies himself before others? Here's the thing, though. In spite of Moses' failure, God still showed up. He still provided for Israel, provided water for Israel. He still made his glory known, and his power was still seen. Moses should have simply done what was asked, yet a choice was set before him when he was instructed to bring the staff, considering it was used the last time. I wholeheartedly believe God knew exactly what was going through uh, Moses' head when God told him to bring his staff. I think God intentionally gave uh, Moses a choice, and I think God was well aware of what Moses was going to do. But, that, uh, but, but God's desire was for Moses to show restraint and to let God show his glory. In the same sense, God was not surprised by this. Again, we serve an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God, and we can never do anything that will surprise him. Whether righteous or unrighteous, we can never do anything he did not see coming. Now, considering Israel's rejection of the possibility of a miraculous intervention, and Moses is acting out of his own anger, fear, contempt, pain, anguish, emotional and mental turmoil, and so on, we see exactly how we shouldn't respond to painful and trying situations. 
And trust me when I tell you the trials and tribulations that Israel experienced in the wilderness are only child's play compared to what lies ahead of us waiting for the return of Messiah. Truth is, each of us, in one way or another, are likely facing battles, even as I speak, which are causing us to want to throw our hands in the air like the children of Israel, or to simply beat the crap out of something, or perhaps someone like Moses. But I truly believe what God wholeheartedly wants from us is the same thing he wanted from Moses, to allow him to be glorified, not to make him glorify himself. We see a similar discussion in 1 Corinthians 2, in which Paul says, uh, beginning with verse 1, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the mystery of God, for I decided not to know about anything among you except Yeshua the Messiah and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Notice Paul makes it a point to say he didn't share the good news with the Corinthians through fancy arguments, through boasting of his own knowledge and training, through brilliant speeches or anything of the sort. He simply says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit, spirit and of the power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul makes it a point to set the example of putting, uh, glorifying the Lord above all else. To paraphrase Paul's words here in my own way, we have to get out of God's way in order to allow God to use us as he sees fit. Sees fit. We can't approach non-believers and bash them over the head with the Bible. Just because it's called the sword of the Spirit doesn't mean we are to leave carnage behind us when we share the gospel with people. We can't beat the rock and expect water to come forth when all we have to do is speak in faith and truth and trust God to come through. Far too often we look at ministry, we look at our own walks, we look at our families and we have this, mind, we have this mindset that we have to put on a good show, we have to make things happen, we have to work to set the example. But the truth is, we just have to get out of God's way. We have to be faithful and daily, and, and daily in our relationship, intentional in our walk with the Lord so that, we, uh, that, so that He does, in fact, have free reign in our lives. We have to be fully and wholeheartedly submitted to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, at all times, in all ways. Then, when the Lord says to speak to the rock, we can faithfully do so, and we can faithfully watch as the springs of waters of life, the living waters uh, that alter the lives of those that He's placed before us comes flowing out of us. As I prepare to close, I want to invite our worship team back up. Zechariah 4, verse 6 says, in reference to the rebuilding of the temple, uh, Zechariah says, It's not by night, might nor by power, but by my ruach, says Adonai Tepaoth. The children of Israel's mistake was refusing to allow for the miraculous and to simply cry out to God for provision and sustenance. Though, thus robbing God of the chance to be glorified by the nation as a whole, Moses' mistake was to rob God of being glorified before Israel and facing, uh, forcing his hand to glorify himself. Moses took the attack personally and responded in completely human manner rather than in a Ruach renewed manner. Ultimately, the children of Israel and Moses both made the same mistake. They approached the error from different directions 
But they both robbed God of the glory that was due his holy name. You and I must learn from their mistakes. We must learn from the countless similar stories throughout the Bible in which we as humanity rob God of his glory due. And in turn, we make it difficult for the world around us to see his glory in us. We must learn and strive to constantly rely on and submit to the renewing of the mind and spirit in the Ruach HaKodesh. We must recognize we have a job to do. We have lives to win for the kingdom of Messiah. We have much ground to cover. And there is tremendous harvest awaiting. But we cannot do it by might nor by power, but only by the Ruach Elohim. We must become like Paul, focused on allowing the Ruach HaKodesh to do his thing in and through us. Not relying on our own knowledge or on our own understanding, but simply preaching the gospel because we know it intellectually. We must allow the waters of life to flow from the rock through the indwelling of the Ruach HaKodesh and our full submission to him. Again, we serve an omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient God, and we can do nothing that will surprise him. Whether we turn to him or not, it will not surprise him, but his yearning is for us to wake up from our own stupidity to wake up from our own fears, our own anxieties, to wake up from our human nature and to rely upon the blood atonement of Messiah, to rely upon the renewal of the Holy Spirit so that we can be effective and impactful for the kingdom of God so that he can be glorified through our lives and our words and not have to glorify himself in spite of us. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, we thank you that you are a God who meets our needs, who in, uh, encounters us face to face. Father, that you are a God who, in spite of our many mistakes, has redeemed, renewed, and restored us in uh, good life and in the walk in Messiah Yeshua because of the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua. Father, we thank you that in spite of our mistakes and our errors, in spite of the difficulties that we have caused you and the pain that we have placed upon your heart, the number of times, countless number of times that we have rejected you, that we have replaced you with other things in our lives that are of non-importance, or that we have damaged your image and likeness in our lives, that you still come through for us, that you still yearn for us and call us to make teshuvah, to return back to you that you still desire nothing more than to work in and through us for the glory of your kingdom. Father, soften our hearts now. Break us of our old habits. Begin even now as I speak, Lord, to revive the renewal of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives that we can truly encounter the world around us, showing them the glory of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in our lives at all times. That we will step to the back, that we will get out of your way, and that we will allow you to work through us rather than having to work around us. Father, I thank you that your word rings true, that each and every year as we open up the Torah Parsha and we read through the cycle, uh, that we can see the truth come out, that we can see you speaking new life into us. We thank you that your word is a living word. And that, Father, we can depend upon you for all our needs. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. Amen.